1: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from laist donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new lexus or $25,000 in cash check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps
0: we have a jam-packed day today on air talk i'm larry mantle so good to have you with us you know, it's always interesting when we come in for our morning editorial meeting. We're here 7 o'clock to, to nail down the final things that we're doing on the program. And we have, we have important news that we need to jump on and totally redo our schedule. That's what happened today. But I can tell you what's happening in the second hour is Congressman Adam Schiff is going to be with us, of course, candidate for U.S. Senate. He'll be in studio. Uh, He has two very prominent Democrats who he's running against in the, the March primary for the U.S. Senate seat that was held for years by Dianne Feinstein. And we'll be talking with him about his candidacy. That's coming up Next hour, we are also going to spend considerable time next hour on yesterday's very sad day at the Los Angeles Times and beyond for the implications in local journalism, with more than 20 percent of the editorial staff of the L.A. Times being laid off because of the seniority portion of of the union contract at the at the times that means that the majority of the people who are leaving the times are more recently arrived and a big part of the the push to diversify, uh, the personnel at the Times to better cover the variety of communities here in Southern California. We're going to talk about what what the implications for that are. But we begin with LA's own investigative reporting, very important work that our Nick Gerda has been doing. Nick's been with us before, and you've hopefully read at com and heard him throughout the day on L.A.S. 89.3, talking about his investigation into Orange County Supervisor Andrew Doe's Direction of millions of taxpayer dollars to a nonprofit that's led by his 22 year old uh, daughter, uh, Rhiannon Doe, who is currently a law student. There has been another development in Nick's reporting. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. What have you most recently found about the public funding going to the organization headed by Rhiannon Doe?
2: Yes, so we published on uh, Monday evening our latest installment of this investigation. and What we found is that Doe had quietly, outside of public view, uh, directed an additional $6.2 million to his 22-year-old daughter's nonprofit group. And all of this was done outside of public meeting agendas, which is the typical transparency for the public to understand uh, how taxpayer dollars, especially of this scale, are being um, routed and, and spent. Um, and and this was all after his daughter's group had failed to submit required audits showing where millions in prior taxpayer dollars had been spent and what happened with those dollars. We have been asking for weeks, uh, we've been asking the county for weeks, what happened with the 6.2 million that we've discovered? Um, and they have not given any answers about how many meals were provided, what actual services were provided. These, these agreements for this money also have some, um, differ from a lot of other county agreements and that they did not define how many um, meals were required to be provided for millions of dollars in funding for meals, and did not require much of it. Did not require a report back to the county on uh, how many services or meals were being provided. So there's a lot of uh, unanswered questions. Uh, we've been trying to get answers. Supervisor Doe, his daughter, um, and county staff have not been providing answers about again what happened with these dollars and and what um, the public got in, um, in exchange.
0: So now we're up to thirteen and a half million dollars total funding. That- that you're aware of that has gone to the organization much of, of, uh, this funding has come from the federal government. These, this was COVID relief funding?
2: Yeah, about half or a little more than half of the funding uh, was from federal COVID relief dollars that came to local governments, including the county of Orange. And what Orange County supervisors did is they, uh, for, for part of that money, about $50 million of that of those dollars, they split it uh, evenly between the five supervisors. and So each supervisor got $10 million that they could distribute within their district. And they did it in a way where, there, unlike most of the other county contracts this these this money did not have to appear on public agendas the way they were distributing it um, and what Supervisor Doe did is a substantial portion of that money he directed to his daughter's nonprofit. Um, and and we when we ran the numbers, we looked at all of the organizations across all five county supervisors' districts that received this district discretionary funding, You know, a total of $50 million that was available. And Supervisor Doe's daughter's group was the number two group out of over 100 organizations in terms of receiving those dollars. And we've obtained records just in the last couple of few days that show they may actually be tied for first or even, even first in. In, in that in that um, ranking so um, it's a it's a outlier in how much money was going to one group. It got more than the Orange County Sheriff's Department, got more than a uh, number of cities um, in Orange County. Um, so a lot of questions there, too, about why so much was going to just one group.
0: I know you've just been spending countless hours digging through documents. Do you have a sense of how many public documents, pages you've had to go through to, to find this?
2: It's been definitely thousands upon thousands of pages of invoices, of contracts, of state investigation reports uh, about Doe on a prior uh, ethics issue that came up. Um, Yeah, just an enormous amount of information that we've been going through. And it's important
0: for listeners to understand the amount of human labor that goes into investigating a story like this. So, Nick, um, are there people doing this work of, you know, feeding people that, that are in need and whatnot? who would have a sense whether uh, the Viet America Society was providing meals with this funding that it received?
2: That's a great question. There are a number of very established organizations in Orange County, uh, Meals on Wheels, Agewell Senior Services, that have been doing this kind of work for a long time. And, and they got funding in other districts in Orange County for this meal distribution. Um, and, and that's a great question uh, that, w- that would be great to explore of, of what when they done to When you're done reading thousands yeah. of documents, <laughs> exactly. you start interviewing um, all these. Exactly. Yeah. And what I will say is, is one I've compared the invoices that the other providers have submitted um, like Age Well and, and Meals on Wheels and they were disclosing how many meals they were providing. For, Even for though it wasn't year. required. Well, were... it, interestingly all these contracts, requ- the original contracts, sorry there's two sets of contracts. The more recent ones that did not require a report back from Supervisor Doe's Daughters Group but there was, an, there was earlier money, about $4 million earlier on that did have requirements to report back to the county on how many meals were being provided in monthly invoices. And uh, Supervisor Doe's Daughters Group Viet America Society um, was not um, disclosing how many meals it was providing for the whole first year of that contract. A couple million dollars they got on monthly invoices uh, altogether, where they were not disclosing how many meals were being provided. Contrast that with the other meal providers in the other districts; they were disclosing how many meals were being provided. So there's a there's a, a disparity there.
0: So know. Nick, this this six point two million that you've most recently uncovered in funding that went to Rhianna Doe's Viet America Society. Was that approved by Supervisor Doe um, after the deadline for audits to be turned in had been reached and no audits had been received from the nonprofit?
2: Yes. According to the contract—the deadlines in the contract— um, on prior funding that this group got, they were already months overdue in submitting um, their audits about where the prior funding had gone when Doe started directing this $6.2 million. And the first of the $6.2 million payments was actually cashed by uh, this organization on the same day his daughter was signing as its president. And there's an, there's an interesting... Uh, f- Ping ponging back and forth, where Doe's daughter signs as president one day, and then a couple days later, someone else signs as president, and there's sort of flip flopping back and forth, which is, uh, from my, talking to experts, very unusual with nonprofit groups mm-hmm. to see such such fast switching back and forth. So that's another thing we're we're trying to unpack as well.
0: So you you began this investigation looking into whether there was. Uh, not necessarily illegal, but, but a sense, a conflict, a family conflict of interest that even though it's not explicitly against the, the ethic rules necessarily, I guess that's a gray area, um, but, but now this is into this really big – when you're talking about 13 – point five million dollars and where that money's gone now the now you've got something that um, arguably is at least as important if not more so where's all that public money gone
2: yeah that's a that's a great question and and for several million of these dollars we have not been able to get any answers from the county government about what happened to these dollars which is un, unusual um, when we're asking talking about taxpayer dollars a um, num- number of ex- experts and officials I've talked to said the public has a right to know where their taxpayer money is going especially on this scale and usually we do. Usually we are able to get that kind of detail. and and there's there's been a, an ethics debate that has emerged from all of this as well. Uh, yesterday there was a nearly hour long debate at, at the board of supervisors meeting by the county supervisors themselves and some public commenters um, about this very issue sparked by our reporting. Uh, Supervisor uh, Vicente Sarmiento proposed a series of uh, new ethics rules in response to this our reporting, um, and it was it was a very contentious item. Um, he was supported by Supervisor Katrina Foley, um, but opposed by Supervisors Don Wagner. And And Doug Chafee, who have been uh, defending what Doe has done and saying there's nothing wrong with it. Um, Supervisor Doe himself actually left that meeting early and did not return, uh, so he was not present for that debate. He didn't give a reason why he left the meeting. but, yeah, it was a very contentious debate. There was even a debate over whether Orange County has a government corruption problem. Uh, Supervisor Sarmiento said there is a, a, corrupt, a lot of corruption, in his words, in Orange County. Uh, Supervisor Wagner pushed back and said he's not aware of any in his office, and he resents that. Um, but then Supervisor Sarmiento pointed out the mayor of Anaheim uh, recently pled guilty around a corruption case federally. Um, and, and, yeah, he pointed to some other examples of that. So a lot of push push and pull um, around ethics rules and, and, and how... Um, what kind of new requirements, if any, should be put in place. And just to
0: clarify, the current requirement, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, as I understand it, applies to an awarding of funds to a minor child of someone who's holding office, but once they're an adult, which is the case here, Rhiannon Doe's 22 years old, there is no requirement that that be disclosed um, before any vote is taken correct. or that the, fam- the family member in office has to recuse him or herself. There's no- so that What was proposed is that any direct family relation even if they're adult that that would have to be
2: disclosed. Exactly. That was that was Supervisor Sarmiento's proposal, Sarmiento's proposal, sorry. Um, is to require disclosure of immediate family members when there's a connection to money that supervisors is awarding and it would also he also proposed bringing more transparency to this district discretionary process that Doe was using to direct a lot of this money to his daughter's group outside of public view. Uh, Sarmiento's proposal required a public log of where those dollars are going, and if there was a family, if there is a family connection that a supervisor has, they have to disclose it, and that particular vote would be public um, by the supervisors. Um, So uh, that, again, got pushed back. That didn't go, It didn't go. Supervisor Wagner argued it would be unconstitutional to put that in place. Well,
0: he, he also said, according to your story, that he thought it would be retroactively applicable which i I didn't understand. We don't really have time to get into that. But uh, our colleague Sharon McNary wanted to know whether uh, the Orange County District Attorney's Public Integrity Unit or even the federal GAO, might look into, you know, what's happened to these these dollars?
2: You know, I haven't heard of um, the DA's office looking into it. Um, interestingly, the DA's office is led by uh, Todd Spitzer in Orange County, who was a colleague of Doe's uh, when they were both supervisors. And Supervisor Doe is married to uh, the assistant presiding judge in Orange County Superior Court, Sherry Pham. Um, so I've heard there may be potential conflicts for the DA's office oh, to look okay. into this, um, just kind of a- anecdotally, uh, because they bring cases every day in the court that that Doe's wife is in a sort of supervisory mm-hmm. position over the judges. Um, so when there is a conflict in the DA's office, usually the state attorney general um, is, is is in charge of that, but I, I they have not um, said anything one way or the other.
0: All right. A lot of people looking at your reporting, Nick. Congratulations on uh, how how deeply you've gotten into this, and we'll look forward to additional details as, as you find them. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. Investigative journalist Nick Gerda, he's LA's senior reporter, and uh, it just Seems like week by week there are new revelations in Nick's reporting on Orange County Supervisor Andrew Doe and his direction of millions of taxpayer daughters. Nonprofit uh, that's led by his 22 year old daughter, a law school student. It's Air Talk on LA. It's 89.3 coming up. Speaking of the law, we talk with uh, one of the leaders in LA County's uh, district attorney's office, Deputy DA Maria Ramirez, one of the 12 candidates for LA County district attorney. She'll join us in a moment. Uh, one minute. It's Air talk on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. And speaking of important journalism, the Los Angeles Times yesterday uh, released a bombshell with uh, so many journalists that are being laid off there. It encompasses more than 20 percent of the editorial staff. Uh, we're going to be talking about the implications of that. And if you are a Times journalist, I would love to hear from you next hour. Whether you're someone who's staying with the paper or someone who has been laid off, I'd like to hear about how the organization is processing this. I mean, we know it's terrible from that size of a cut of of a news organization that already uh, has has seen layoffs. is just very bad news. For local journalism, and we got a great example with Nick Gerd of why it's so important to do this kind of work. That's coming up next hour here on AirTalk. Joining us will be David flick NPR media analyst and correspondent. But we continue our conversations with candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. There are a total of 12 of them, one of them being the incumbent District Attorney George Gascon, who is seeking a second four-year term. Joining us now is Maria Ramirez, who is one of the head deputy district attorneys. That's a management title within the DA's office. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it.
4: Well, thank you for having me and talking about this very, very important race for our voters.
0: Before we get into some of the specifics, just very generally your critique of what's happened to the office over the past four years.
4: Yeah, so I've been in the office 33 years now, and uh, it is really a travesty what is happening. Uh, it, it breaks my heart every day, uh, the lack of leadership, the chaos that is happening within the office. And uh, we cannot effectively do our job in keeping the community safe. And so that is really the reason that I jumped into the race.
0: We we hear about uh, morale being low in the office Um, You're a candidate who's actually on the inside and has managerial responsibilities. Describe for us what that mood is. Uh,
4: Yes, Uh, I think it started on day one of December 7th, 2020, uh, when George Gascon came into office and uh, rolled out the directives. And I think that the the mood, of course, was one of... uh, Trepidation. Uh, however, we were all thinking, okay, well, uh, let's try to work with the new administration. The voters have spoken. Uh, but it became evidently clear very, very early on uh, that uh, the DA no longer cared about the opinions of his employees, uh, did not engage with us on discussing policy and uh, how we were going to implement that in court. Our lawyers had a very difficult time in the courtroom. Uh, implementing these policies that oftentimes were, uh, they found were illegal or unethical. And, uh, you know, I found myself being a conduit between our employees and the new administration and trying to resolve these issues. And I, I didn't get a, a positive response.
0: So, g- can you give me an example of an illegal or unethical directive that? the DA uh, office provided to prosecutors?
4: Um, yeah, well, the very uh, obvious one I think that the public knows about is the three strikes law and the directive not to allege those those uh, strikes in complaints. And the court sided with us and found that, in fact, we were obligated as prosecutors to allege those strikes. Uh, but one that maybe uh, the public not does not know about is, for example, in the juvenile uh, system, Uh, He, the directives made the attorneys not file the appropriate charges. So, for example, if a a juvenile committed a robbery, he wanted us to file the least possible charge that could be related to that. So he directed us to file a theft charge when, in fact, the the crime was a robbery. So our lawyers really felt that they were not uh, putting forth to the court and to the public uh, the truth of, of the facts and so those were two major examples that um, that I struggled with
0: we're talking with Maria Ramirez deputy district attorney in the Los Angeles County office and she's candidate for LA County da let's talk about the prosecution of juveniles because one of the thing this uh, the office of course you know has done is is um, not uh, prosecute uh, juveniles as adults there may be st- some examples where they haven't but but generally the policy as I understand it, is even in, in particularly heinous cases to not, um, to not seek review of uh, adult trial of those individuals. Uh, to what extent has that changed the strategy of those prosecuting juvenile crimes?
4: So uh, initially, the uh, directive that Mr. Gascon put in place is that we would no longer seek to try any juvenile as an adult. Uh, eventually, because of the bad press, he was getting on many of these cases, especially in those situations where uh, juveniles came back later on as adults, uh, where he we could not file those individuals as adults, uh, then there was no prosecution to be had in the juvenile justice system. And so I think the policy of blanket, not allowing us to file cases of juveniles and adult is very flawed because um, there are many cases, especially as you mentioned, Larry, the heinous cases where uh, an individual, a juvenile is 16 or 17 years old, has committed multiple murders or very heinous murders. The juvenile justice system is ill-equipped to deal with that individual. The amount of time that they could keep him or her uh, would be you know, five to six years, and that is not enough time to rehabilitate that individual considering the type of crime that he committed. So we really have to implement policies, even in the juvenile system, that looks at these cases on a case-by-case basis and what is best not only for the victims in the case, the community, but also the minor and where is he going to get the amount of uh, rehabilitation, but also punishment that is deserving of the case.
0: Maria Ramirez with us, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. What currently is the policy of the DA's office on sentencing enhancements in prosecutions, and what would your policy be if you were elected DA? Uh,
4: Yes, with regard to enhancements, there are many blanket policies and many enhancements that we absolutely cannot use uh, to charge individuals with. Uh, There are some minor exceptions. Uh, my policy would be one that is a case-by-case approach. Um, I believe that the legislature has given us these enhancements so that we are able to differentiate uh, cases and the person that commits them and the type of punishment that that person should get. So the very basic example would be a person who commits a robbery without a gun is very different from the individual who has a gun, commits a robbery with the gun, and uses that gun to effectuate that robbery. So we want to be able to be flexible in our approach to criminal justice. And be able to apply what is the most fair disposition and sentencing for the facts of the case and for that individual defendant.
0: For you know, that specific enhancement using the gun, a gun in the commission of a crime, is that enhancement being prosecuted much uh, currently by the office?
4: So there, uh, there are two gun enha- type gun enhancements: the small gun enhancement, which is. Uh, We can impose, however, we have to ask permission uh, from the director level in our office. And before we had discretion to be able to apply those at at the time of filing, uh, we have to go through this process. There is uh, some big gun allegations uh, that have to do with more violent crimes that we are not allowed to prosecute.
0: Really? that's So in the cases where there's a greater degree of violence, and has it been explained what the reason is for not uh, charging an enhancement in those cases?
4: Uh, I don't think that uh, the explanation has been sufficient enough, but I imagine it has to do with Mr. Gascon's ideas of uh, these individuals not serving too much time in prison. Um, and I think that's my understanding of why he imposed them. And
0: and speaking of that view that, I mean, there are are those who believe sentence are too long and, and that it actually works against the goal of rehabilitating people who are in prison, um, to, to what extent do you think that, that there needs to be criminal justice reforms and more um, um, decision-making within the office to try and seek shorter sentences, to try and avoid mass incarceration?
4: Yeah, so I think the culture has significantly changed, and that is something that the public has to understand, that we are no longer uh, evaluating cases the way maybe we were in the 90s, uh, where it really was a matter of the concern for the violent crime that was happening at that time and really getting these these individuals off of the streets. I think now, obviously, there is always reform that needs to happen, uh, but it has to be thoughtful in the sense that we cannot compromise the public safety of the community when we implement these reforms and so uh, when we approach criminal justice and the cases that come before us we have to evaluate each case on a case-by-case basis and uh, I think that we have learned so much in the last 10 years about the intersection of other factors that lead a person to commit crimes like mental health and drug addiction and so we have to be expansive in our analysis and be able to analyze uh, a person's actions what their criminal history is what are they facing Right now, what was the cause of the reason they they committed the crime? So we have to be a little more complex in our analysis. Maria
0: Ramirez is a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles. She, she she said I think 33 years in the office, and she's seeking the leadership of the department as L.A. County District Attorney. Um, Maria, what what about uh, quality of life crimes? Because you were talking about that prosecutorial discretion. Um, you have quality of life crimes, which may have a big effect on residents of an area but may be associated with a person's addiction or or mental health challenges. So how do you think the office should prosecute those quality of life cases, taking into account the impact on society versus what the individual um, defendant is going through?
4: Sure. So uh, currently, I don't believe that we're doing an effective job uh, with prosecuting those uh, quality of life crimes. Uh, the district attorney has not made that a priority and I think that we're seeing the effects of that in our communities. And so, number one, we have to prosecute those crimes. I mean, the legislature uh, put forth these individual crimes that are a problem in our society and that we have an obligation to prosecute those crimes. So that's number one. Uh, we have to file cases against these individuals. However, the the part uh, that I think that we can be a little bit more uh, expansive and creative with is What does accountability look like with those types of crimes? Obviously, we're not not dealing with the most violent criminals. So when we uh, prosecute these crimes, we have to create accountability for these individuals. Uh, where they uh, either learn about their mistakes or if they are suffering from some kind of addiction or homelessness or mental health crisis, uh, that we direct them in the direction of getting those services, but we have something hanging over their head if they do not get them. We have to be part of the solution here, and that's really important.
0: Speaking of hanging over their head, one of the arguments for drug court has been that there's a stick with a carrot, so to speak, and that you you have, you can compel someone into, treatment now critics say that's not the best way for people to go through rehab to get sober uh, others say well that may be you know what is the tipping point for the person actually getting sober what's your view of sort of that model versus non-compelled treatment
4: so i i just don't think that non-compelled treatment in the area of criminal law uh, has much of an effect uh Obviously, we don't want to compel individuals that are suffering from these things but are not committing crimes. That's that's their choice. Uh, but when these individuals are committing crimes, then as the district attorney, we have a responsibility uh, to be involved in a solution to that problem and and to prevent that individual from committing these crimes in the future. So um, I, I, we can't ignore that responsibility. And so I think that the compelled uh, drug treatment or the compelled mental health treatment is critical to deal with the current crisis that we have right now in L.A. County.
0: We're talking with Maria Ramirez, who is deputy district attorney seeking uh, L.A. County District Attorney Office, one of 12 candidates. We've invited all of them to join us on AirTalk. Uh, George Gascone has prosecuted uh, 15 officers uh, compared to just two in the previous two decades. Um, and, you know, your office knows it's very difficult to convict an officer of misconduct. Uh, your thoughts about the approach that the office is currently taking toward officer misconduct?
4: So I disagree with the approach they're taking now, not because we shouldn't be uh, making a concerted effort to ensure that uh, police officers that commit crimes are not prosecuted. But but I think that the current administration is really using it as a political platform uh, to say that, hey, we're going to go um, after cops and uh, we're going to do it uh, in a thorough fashion and, and here are all the convictions. And every time that there is a filing of a peace officer, George Ascon gets on the media and talks about that, that case. He doesn't do that with other cases that the community is facing, but he really d- makes a concerted effort, uh, to let the public know I'm prosecuting cops. I don't think he's doing it in a thoughtful manner. I think we can improve from the way that we used to do it. Uh, I think that there has to be t- transparency to the public on what we do. And I also think that we have to uh, improve, uh, the, time frame in which we make decisions about police investigations and filings because it affects so many people and we want to make sure that these individuals that are involved in those cases are able to go on with their life, go on with their career. So there's definitely room for improvement, but I would not use it as a, a political ploy to to um, make the public think, oh, we're going after cops.
0: You, you might disagree with my analysis. Mm-hmm. My sense is of previous DAs, their view was, if we're going to prosecute a cop, we have to feel... there's a very strong chance we're going to get a conviction because of the challenges of convicting officers uh, of use of force incidents. And my sense of the change, the shift under the current DA is there's public value in prosecuting officers we believe have engaged in misconduct, irrespective of what the odds are of gaining a conviction. That's kind of my sense of this. And I wonder uh, what—feel free to disagree with that, but what do you think is the right approach?
4: Well, I definitely think that we are not um, abiding by our ethical duty to prosecute cases where uh, we can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that if if we were to prosecute an individual that we knew committed a crime, but we couldn't really prove it, I think the community would be up in arms. But because it is a police officer, somehow it is okay. I don't agree with that. And that is the reason why. We have a duty to the public to review these cases, make sure that there's enough uh, facts and evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And we have to apply that same standard to the regular person in the community and to police officer cases. And so that is... Is our ethical duty and I really believe in it. Uh,
0: chance for you to make a closing statement to listeners as to why you you think that they should vote for you and maybe one of the things to include in that very briefly is how you differentiate yourself from the other candidates.
4: Um, sure Larry thank you. Uh, You know, I was born and raised in Los Angeles County in the Boyle Heights area of Los Angeles. I became a district attorney because I was concerned about the violent crime that was affecting our mostly immigrant community at that time. And uh, I joined the district attorney's office 33 years ago. And the one thing that makes me different from every single candidate here is that I came up in the office as a trial prosecutor. I have a significant amount of trial experience. I have dealt with victims, law enforcement, the community in trying these cases and then the one thing that sets me apart is that I I actually have management experience uh, running the district attorney's office. Uh, Jackie Lacey appointed me as bureau director. I oversaw uh, the Bureau of Specialized Prosecutions, where I oversaw eight of our most complex and high profile divisions, over 260 employees. And really, you know, if you're going to get on a ship, Larry, who do you want, you know, navigating that ship? Somebody who has done it before, who knows what the issues are, what the problems are, and can fix it on day one. And that is really the leadership, is what I bring bring to the table. Uh, And I think LA County deserves a strong leader in the district attorney's office, someone who will... uh work on public safety but also implement effective and re- responsible
0: reform. Maria Ramirez, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. We appreciate it very much.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: She's one of the 12 candidates for LA County DA, all of whom have been invited to join us. We give the same length of time for all of the candidates. Maria Ramirez is a deputy district attorney currently in the LA County DA's office. We have more of the candidates who'll be joining us almost daily right here on Air Talk on LA. It's 89.3. I have to admit my my ignorance about the human body that I didn't realize the placenta is actually an organ. We're going to find out the important role of the placenta and some of the fascinating new research about it when we come back in just 90 seconds.
3: Next
0: hour on Air Talk, candidate for U.S. Senate, Congressmember Adam Schiff, will be with us. He, of course, is going against uh, two other very prominent Democrats, members of Congress, Barbara Lee of Oakland and Katie Porter of Orange County. And uh, Steve Garvey, who's prominent because of his baseball career with the Dodgers and Padres for many years, is a Republican candidate. We're inviting all of the leading U.S. Senate candidates to join us. Adam Schiff with us live in studio next hour, and we'll talk about the huge job loss and loss to journalism that was announced yesterday at the Los Angeles Times. But right now, we talk about the placenta, which is an organ that develops in the uterus during pregnancy, and it has incredible importance and is remarkably sophisticated in what it does. Joining us to talk a bit just about the importance of the placenta, what we're learning about its role, and also some of the interesting research into it is Margareta Pisarska, Dr. Pisarska's Director of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, as well as Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Dr. Pisarska, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Let's uh, let's start with um, some of the research that that you were doing as a part of the Human Placenta Project. Uh, this is something in which you've really been a, a pioneer. And and you know, share with us some of the things we're still learning about this organ.
1: Yes. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, the placenta is actually an organ and. You know, it serves so many functions. It provides nutrients and oxygen to the fetus. It helps remove harmful waste, and it provides immune protection to the fetus, and it also produces hormones to support fetal development. So it serves multiple functions and essentially works as multiple little organ systems to help the developing fetus. And in addition to that, it also is critical because it not only helps with uh, fetal development, but it also impacts mother and fetus during pregnancy as well as beyond pregnancy. Uh, So it's very critical to understand this. And uh, some of the work that we have been doing on the placenta has been focusing on early placental development. So, we have the opportunity to actually look at the placenta in the first trimester of pregnancy, so very early on during uh, early development of the placenta, and we can also look at the placenta and study the placenta once it's been delivered. So, we can use those two time points to get an evaluation of how the placenta changes throughout gestation and what its functions are at these different time points. So we've been very fortunate to do uh, studies. It's, well, we focus on what we call multiple omics studies, where we look at many, many different genes that get turned on in the placenta at these different time points to see how that changes. And we also look at how epigenetic or how the environment turns these genes on to allow for the placenta to develop and function. And so we focus largely on the placenta and the impact of the epigenetics or the environment as well as the genetics or what has initially been instilled into the placenta uh, from uh, mother and father uh, and uh, what the genes are regionally set to do and then how the environment changes it.
0: We're talking with Dr. Margareta Pisarska of Cedar Sinai Medical Center, who's Director of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, talking about the work that she does uh, on uh, the human placenta project to try and better understand the placenta. And, you know, I, I think all of us understand how uh, the health of the newborn is going to be very related to the placenta. What are the ways in which Lifelong health can be affected, what happens in utero via the placenta?
1: So uh, there is this, um, what we call the development origins of health and disease. And so what we know is uh, how the fetus develops in pregnancy and its exposures in pregnancies can play a role in its lifelong health. So for example, um, we study uh, sex differences. So we look at how the impact of fetal sex and the impact of the placenta and the sex of the placenta, which is associated with the fetus, differs in in utero and what that means moving forward. So for example, what we have seen is, is the immune response And how the immune system uh, works in uh, the placenta early on in pregnancy might have some slight differences between uh, male or female fetus. Mm. And and what we are interested in is to see if that translates further on into childhood and adulthood because we do know that Certain autoimmune diseases differ between males and females. Uh, Some uh, women are at increased risk of certain autoimmune diseases such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, whereas males are more prone to uh, autoimmune diseases such as uh, ankylosing spondylitis, which is an autoimmune disease of the the, um, bone and tendons. So um, we're looking at the signals to see if these signals continue in the immune system into um, childhood and adulthood to have a better understanding if there's something we can learn from this and potentially address early on to help improve the
0: health of the individual. We're talking with Cedars-Sinai Medical Center physician, Dr. Margareta Pisarska. She's a researcher as well, director of reproductive endocrinology and infertility and pro- professor of OBGYN at Cedars. If you have questions about the placenta, you can give us a call at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. When we come back, we'll be adding a, a second physician to our conversation, researcher Dr. Mana Parast, who is director of perinatal pathology at UC San Diego? We'll be talking with Dr. Parast about some of the interesting work that she is doing on the pathology of placentas. It's air talk on LAist 89.3. Back with more in just one minute. It's air talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about placentas, their importance, what we're learning from research into them. And we have a pair of physician researchers joining us to talk about their work. Dr. Mana Parast is Director of Perinatal Pathology at UC San Diego. Dr. Parast, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's talk about the research that you do. You look at placentas from complicated pregnancies and you research them. What are some of the things you're looking to find in doing that pathology?
5: Thank you. That's a very good question. So uh, placental pathology is uh, really an underappreciated area. We can really learn a lot. Um, by looking at the placenta at delivery, and particularly in complicated pregnancies, such as pregnancies that are complicated by preeclampsia, which is a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, um, and other pregnancies uh, that are complicated, uh, for example, by fetal growth restriction, where the baby is small. So looking at the placenta can answer these questions about sort of what happened. Um, And for this reason, placenta is called a lot of times as a diary of intrauterine life. So for example, in both these cases in preeclampsia and fetal growth restriction, you know, there's, there are differences uh, that, there, there are different categories of uh, these uh, diseases. Some of these are caused by vascular injury to the placenta. So uh, basically maternal blood not getting to the placenta um, and causing infarcts or basically parts of this uh, placental tissue to die. But then there are other um, sort of processes that are more inflammatory in nature. Uh, So for example, if there is an infection in pregnancy or if there is um, sometimes inadvertent recognition of the placental tissue, which is of fetal origin by mom's immune system, then these can cause uh, inflammatory lesions in the placenta. And looking at the placenta at delivery, and identifying whether there are these vascular issues or inflammatory issues causing the problem can give us a lot of insight into uh, potentially what mom could expect in a subsequent pregnancy. You know, what is her you know risk uh, of recurrence of uh, such lesions in a future pregnancy? But also, we're now starting to learn that you know these different patterns of injury in the placenta can also dictate. Kind of different um, ways in which the baby, once it's born and uh, grows up as an adult, how it's affected and how uh, you know uh, it is prone to different diseases later in adult life.
0: Yeah, and and I mean that's fascinating what the potential lifelong effects of that is. So let's let's take the example of um, an infant who's born undersized and you, the. Is, well, you know that that infant can still catch up and 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 not have any negative effects from that. Is our view of that changing? That you know what happens in utero related to placenta um, can have an effect lifelong, even on on size of someone.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. So a baby that is uh, prone to and that has that experiences placental dysfunction and is born small. Um, might be able to experience catch-up growth and be okay um, in the perinatal, you know, in the uh, sort of early neonatal period. Uh, But now we're learning that more and more these babies, because they've been deprived of um, oxygen and nutrients during in utero life, they, uh, their metabolism has been programmed differently so that they kind of, you know, they, they like to sort of keep all the nutrients to themselves. And so as a result, prone to metabolic syndrome, like uh, obesity and diabetes later in life, and even to cardiovascular disease. So we're just learning about all of this. One of the markers that we're learning about is um, a a lesion in the maternal vessels in the placenta called decidual vasculopathy. And we're learning that potentially by identifying this lesion in the placenta, we might be able to identify a subgroup of moms that might be actually actually at risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, So as Dr. Prasarska was mentioning um, earlier, so the placenta can really give us insights into uh, both Um, sort of lifelong health of the baby, but also uh, maternal complications.
0: We're talking with Dr. Mara uh, Peraz, who is at UC San Diego and director of perinatal pathology, the research that she does there on placentas uh, uh, post-delivery and trying to better understand some of the health implications for uh, the mother as well as for uh, the infant and even lifelong, as you've heard her talking about. Dr. Pisarska of Cedar sinai let me come back to you and ask about, I'm sure for many people looking at getting pregnant or who even are currently pregnant, one of the questions is, well, what can I do, if anything, to try and assure the health of, of my placenta that it's, you know, that it's all working as intended? Uh,
1: yes, that's a great question. So we always think of, you know, uh, everyone can at least start planning ahead at least three months in advance uh, before they attempt pregnancy. And we could do very, uh, various different things, do some preconception counseling, make sure they're taking prenatal vitamins, eating healthy, and, uh, and minimizing exposures. So I think that's really important to address that with individuals before they uh, actually embark on pregnancy. And in fact, uh, some of the earlier work that we also focused on with the placenta has been looking at how uh, infertility treatments and uh, infertility impact the placenta and long-term outcomes because of some studies that suggested there might be metabolic changes in infants and changes in the placenta as a result of the fertility treatments. But overall, we were able to show that uh, the fertility treatments are, are safe and lead to uh, outcomes that result in healthy placentas equivalent to individuals who don't require fertility treatments. Uh, so that has been very reassuring. Um, but I think it's important to make sure individuals are conscientious about this. And sometimes there are diseases that uh, Dr. Pros has mentioned that we can't control, but sometimes we can at least uh Address it early in pregnancy, in the hope to try to minimize the complications associated with it.
0: Dr. Basarska, we're almost out of time, but just real quickly, what do you, what do you think of some of the practices we hear about of of uh, you know people eating placentas post pregnancy or turning it into cosmetic treatments, things like that? What do you think?
1: Um, well, of course, it has a lot of nutrients in it, but uh, sometimes the nutrients might not transfer to individuals um, because of our intestines might break things down differently. So, um, you know, I know that individuals um, are using it and for products because there is a lot of nutrients in it. There are also additional natural ways to get uh, those nutrients as well. Um, It has served its function. Or the most important critical function is actually during pregnancy itself. So, fortunately, that's where we look at it as the most vital part uh, of the percentile.
0: I want to thank you both for being with us. That's Dr. Margareta Pasarska at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center where she directs reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She's professor of OBGYN at Cedars. And our thanks to Dr. Mana Parast, who is director of perinatal pathology at UC San Diego. We thank them both for sharing their research with us. It's Air Talk on LA. It's 89.3. Member of Congress and candidate for U.S. Senate Adam Schiff coming up. We'll also talk about yesterday's dark day at the Los Angeles Times.
3: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
0: It's Air talk on L.A.'s 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, the travails at the Los Angeles Times with a mass layoff yesterday that represents more than 20% of the editorial staff. It's just terrible news, not just for those of us in this business that are seeing the tremendous attrition within journalism, but what it means for those of us that love local journalism, have been Times readers, lifelong in many cases, and rely on the Times for its local coverage. We'll talk about what the impact of this is going to be on the Times News coverage as well as on the lives of those who've been dedicated to journalism. But we begin with candidate for the U.S. Senate, longtime member of Congress, Adam Schiff. We're interviewing the most prominent candidates for U.S. Senate in the case of Congressmember Schiff. He is uh, also up against uh, two uh, fellow members of Congress, Barbara Lee from Oakland, longtime member of Congress, Katie Porter a Democrat who represents a swath of Orange County. Uh, Also in this most recent candidates debate, Republican Steve Garvey, the former Dodger, and Padre. Remember that in March, the primary is a top two, regardless of party. So the question is who are going to be the two who end up facing off in November uh, for the seat. Uh, Congressman Schiff, thank you very much for being with us again. We appreciate it.
6: It's great to be back.
0: So... uh, you have served uh, since 2001, is it, as a member of yes. Congress before that, California legislature, the, the state Senate. Um, what do you see as the most relevant experience that you bring from these years in Congress to a senatorial position? Because it, it is a different office.
6: It is a different office, but the challenges are the same. Uh, the size of the responsibility is much greater. Um, but I think what California needs in the Senate is someone that can take on the big fights when they're necessary. Uh, our democracy is still deeply in trouble. Uh, it is even more in trouble now that Donald Trump seems to be cruising towards renomination of his party. Uh, we need someone who is willing to be in the middle of a fight to defend our institutions and take all the heat that comes with it and has the experience to do that. Uh, we also need someone, though, that has a record of getting things done. Uh, and from my time in the legislature, when I wrote California's Patient Bill of Rights or wrote the legislation to bring up-to-date textbooks to our schools to the time in Congress where... I brought back millions to build housing uh, for my constituents and uh, helped to build the Pasadena Gold Line light rail, which you know very well, mm-hmm. uh, and established an early earthquake warning system, passed legislation to protect press freedom, attack nuclear proliferation. I have a lock re- record of getting things done, of delivering. And more than anything else, California needs a senator who's going to deliver, uh, who's going to help make the economy work for people again.
0: How do you differentiate uh, 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 what you would bring to this office, particularly from the other two Democrats and members of Congress in the race?
6: Well, on on the two attributes that I think are most necessary in the Senate, um, uh, you know, it's less about policy differences, frankly. It's more about who did demonstrate leadership uh, when our democracy was at stake, who's moved to the center of that fight uh, and who was on the sidelines of that fight. Um, I led the investigation into Donald Trump. I led his first impeachment trial in the Senate. Uh, I served on the January 6th committee to expose uh, his misconduct to the country. And as a result of that, he's being held accountable uh, in multiple prosecutions. Uh, So one of us led uh, on this um, and took all the heat that comes with that and but the other is also uh, a difference in terms of being able to work with others to get things done. Um, I have a long record of doing exactly that. It's, it's why um, Nancy Pelosi and now more than 70 percent of the California House Democrats have endorsed me, when usually a delegation will stay out when there's more than one uh, member of the delegation running. But they've gotten involved because we have a serious challenge in California with a lack of abor- affordable housing, lack of affordable childcare. Uh, And the California members of the House want somebody in the Senate they know that can get things done that will work with them to actually deliver. Uh, So they've made the rare exception in this race to, to get behind one candidate, and they've gotten behind me.
0: We're in an incredibly polarized environment. That's true on Capitol Hill as well. But uh, arguably, the House seems to be even more at odds than the Senate. So if you were elected a senator from California, you might have some opportunities to work more with Republicans in the Senate. And I wonder to what extent you would pursue that.
6: Oh, I would definitely pursue that. And and that's really been my uh, practice. um, To give you another illustration of some of the differences uh, in perspective of the California uh, candidates who are running in this race, um, President Biden reached a deal with the Republicans to raise our debt ceiling um, in order to avoid catastrophic default, uh, in order to avoid the loss of millions of jobs, and the loss of our standing around the world if we were to, first, for the first time, ever default on our national uh, debt and obligations. I voted for it. My two Democratic colleagues voted to default. Um, now, that, that vote uh, is about, are you prepared to actually do the work of governing and do it in a bipartisan way? or is it about political talking points? And I think in many respects, this race is a race about results versus rhetoric. Um, On the Intelligence Committee, even during the most vociferous fights I had with Devin Nunes over Donald Trump and his misconduct, each and every year we got our annual Intelligence Authorization Bill done. That can't be done on a partisan basis. It has to be bipartisan. There's no way to pass it otherwise. Uh, it uh, makes sure that we have new privacy protections and make sure we fund our agencies appropriately. It makes sure that we protect our country. Uh, so I have a long history, uh, as you know, in this region of working with people like David Dreyer when he was the Republican next door to build the Gold Line light rail.
0: Well, and you mentioned Devin Nunes, a fellow California former member of Congress now. I kind of think of your relationship as a microcosm of what's happening, because my recollection is you two got along, despite your significant political differences, you got along as people pretty well. And then you had that falling out co-leading the committee.
6: That's exactly right. No, we actually worked together very well for years. He was, prior to Trump, uh, you know, kind of a John Boehner, what I would describe as a country club Republican. Uh, he wasn't particularly ideological. In fact, I used to quote him uh, often for something he said about the Tea Party when he called them um, lemmings in suicide vests. Uh, but like so many others during the era of Trump, um, he became an ardent MAGA follower of the former president. Uh, and yes, uh, I I took him on, had to take him on. Uh, we were charged with leading the investigation into Trump's misconduct. Um, but uh, even through the, the the worst of those uh, difficulties, continued to work with conservative members uh, like John Culberson of Texas. Uh, he and I worked together to make sure that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, continued to be funded and continued to do the amazing work on Mars. And uh, uh, and what we did, and what I've done with so many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, is. Focus on, okay, we're going to have very distinct differences on these other issues, but what can we work together on? And I think there's an even greater opportunity to do that in the Senate.
0: We're talking with Adam Schiff, candidate for U.S. Senate, the seat held for many, many years by Dianne Feinstein. Uh, He is one of three prominent Democratic members of Congress who are seeking the seat. Uh, Also, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee are running uh, as Democrats. The top two finishers, regardless of party, will meet in November to determine who holds the seat. Steve Garvey, um, the most well-known of the Republican candidates, the former uh, Major League baseball player let's let's talk a bit about the differences you have on israel and how it's executing its military actions in gaza this is the difference between yourself and and katie porter and barbara lee um, they are calling for uh, an ongoing ceasefire uh seeing that as the best way to get the hostages released and to make peace in the region um, I'll let you define how how you see this differently. What do you think of what Israel's doing?
6: Well, uh, first of all, in terms of my colleagues, I, uh, Barbara Lee has been very clear. Um, we were in a candidate forum uh, even 24 hours after the attack uh, of October 7th. She was calling for a ceasefire then. She has a very clear position on it. Um, uh, I have you know strong differences of opinion. As much as I respect her, I don't understand Katie Porter's position. So I can't contrast myself with hers because I think. Um, her position is very unclear. So you don't think
0: it is clear that she necessarily supports the ceasefire? I think
6: that she has tried to have it both ways, and I don't know what that looks like in the context of this issue. But but let me, um, let me just go back to October 7th. Uh, the magnitude of, of that horror, the deliberate brutality and barbarism, the murders, but also the rapes, the tortures, the hostage taking, Um, no country could allow an attack like that to go forward uh, and not defend itself. Uh, No country could simply say after an attack like that, we're going to cease fire. We're not going to try to get our hostages back. We're not going to go after the people responsible. We're going to continue to allow a terrorist organization to run Gaza uh, and threaten us as as Hamas is with attacking us over and over and over again, like they did on October 7th. No country could do that. Uh, and so Israel has a right to defend itself. It has a duty to defend itself. Um, and I think we need to continue to work with Israel to reduce the, the civilian casualties, which are um, just heartbreaking. And I know some people find it um, inconsistent to, uh, to grieve the loss of Israeli lives and think Israel should defend itself, but also grieve the loss of innocent Palestinian lives. Uh, you can do both, indeed, I think it's very consistent with human nature to, to do both. And um, I am strongly in support of a two-state solution. I think it's the only uh, answer out of this. Um, it's the only way to have a, a permanent, uh, peaceful resolution with two states living side by side. Um, and, and so we have to figure out how to get back to a pathway uh, to that, but we need to get the hostages back, including a lot of American hostages. Uh, and we need to make sure that a terrorist organization is not um, running Gaza and, and ruining the future for the people of Gaza.
0: If, if you were elected this Senate seat, what sort of influence would you try to bring in terms of Israel's policy toward the Palestinians' building of settlements, et cetera?
6: Uh, you know, as a long-term member, uh, first of the Foreign Affairs Committee and then as uh, chair of the Intel Committee, um, I had frequent meetings with Prime Minister Netanyahu and other prime ministers before him. Uh, I met with uh, Palestinian security forces and Palestinian civil sor- society organizations, um, and I used all of those opportunities to uh, discuss ways that we could improve security for Israelis and Palestinians, that we could improve the quality of life, that we could get to two states. Uh, I remember pressing uh, Netanyahu years ago on two states, and uh And I've also seen the important security cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority uh, in the West Bank uh, to try to uh, keep both Israel and uh, Palestinian lives protected. Uh, So I've I've also seen the importance of that relationship. Uh, And I, in the Senate, will continue to use every opportunity I have to engage the Israeli government, to engage the Palestinian Authority, uh, to try to move uh, towards a two-state solution. It's the only thing that makes sense.
0: Do you think, though, that Netanyahu's policies, particularly regarding settlements, have made it much more difficult to come to that two-state solution?
6: Uh, I have strong disagreements with a lot of uh, Netanyahu's policies, and I've been very open about that. And, uh, you know, any actions that I think make it more difficult to get to two states, that make two states less viable, um, are are moving in the wrong direction. Um I don't see how one state is supposed to work, um, uh, one state in which Israel is both Jewish and democratic. Uh, Demographically, I think that's a a dead end. And so it's the only solution that makes sense to me. And I continue to use um, the, the opportunities that I have as a policymaker, but also in my interactions personally with with Palestinians and Israelis to to move us in that direction. We're talking with
0: Congressman Adam Schiff, candidate for the U.S. Senate. Let's talk about domestic priorities. You mentioned affordable housing, homelessness, some of the huge issues that we have in California, and that's probably front and center number one right now. What are the things you think you would be able to do as California senator if elected to make a difference there?
6: Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that this is – overwhelmingly a supply problem. We simply don't have enough uh, housing. We don't have enough affordable housing. Uh, And unless we change that, we're never gonna solve this problem, uh, nor are we gonna solve the problem with with homelessness. We have to build in California alone hundreds of thousands of new units of affordable housing. Um, The federal government has a lot uh, that it can do to stimulate that development of housing, the most significant of which is something called the low-income housing tax credit that incentivizes developers to build low-income housing. But it's way oversubscribed uh, because we won't allocate enough funding to make that credit available to developers. Uh, We need to dramatically expand the low-income housing tax credit. We need to make sure the federal government uh, once again invests in housing. Uh, We've been cutting the federal investment in housing also since the 70s, which is totally backward. Uh, I also think we need to keep people in the housing they have now uh, by providing a renter's tax credit. uh, And... Uh, And in terms of those who are unhoused, when we do um, find shelter for them, we need to make sure that they get the mental health services and the substance abuse services necessary to keep them housed.
0: I mean, Section 8 vouchers are, you know, there's always a waiting list for those. Do you think it possible the federal government would provide more funding for that?
6: We can absolutely provide more funding for that. And it's, it's one lottery to get one of those vouchers. But as I've learned over the years from many of my constituents, it's another lottery to actually find someone who will take it. take it, yeah. And uh, now, again, that gets back to supply problems, too. Uh, you could give everyone who needs one a Section 8 voucher, and I think we should. Everyone who qualifies in terms of their income should have a voucher to help them with housing costs. But if you do that and you don't increase the supply of housing, then you're not really addressing the problem.
0: I want to close on climate and what you would advocate in the way of legislation if you were elected to the Senate uh, to affect national climate
6: policy. Uh, You know, I have a long history on this. As a prosecutor, um, I prosecuted oil companies for dumping oil in the ocean, and uh, I created the first federal environmental crimes unit here in Los Angeles. Um, That was
0: at the U.S. Attorney's Office? It
6: was. It was. And... Uh, Look, I, even before there was a Green New Deal, which I'm proud to co-sponsor, I was urging uh, Speaker Pelosi in her first iteration as Speaker to embark on an Apollo project-like effort to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels, and she was hugely supportive. Um, We have to stop investing in a fossil fuel industry that is killing us and killing the planet. Uh, We need to more than redouble our efforts to invest in green energy, green jobs, the renewable energy economy. Uh, because it's the future and it will help us get ahead of this tipping point. I may be in a vanishing school of people, but I'm an optimist on climate because I think science and technology give us the opportunity to get ahead of the tipping point. But only uh, if we view what we did in the Inflation Reduction Act as the first step. That was the most massive investment we made in attacking climate. But that has to be just the beginning. Uh, we can We can get ahead of this. Uh, and technology can help us Um, we've seen the price point of solar and other renewable sources of energy come down below oil then come down below gas um, science and technology can help us, but but only if we incentivize it and stop incentivizing these industries that are killing us.
0: Congressmember Schiff, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, and we're looking forward to seeing as uh, this all plays out what's going to happen with the future of the U.S. Senate seat. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Larry, uh, Democratic member of the House of Representatives Adam Schiff, his district taking in Burbank, Glendale liver of Pasadena, and surrounding communities, including parts of Los Angeles. Candidate for the U.S. Senate seat held for years by Dianne Feinstein. We we're talking with all the candidates in the race uh, before the March primary. It's air talk on LA's 89.3. Coming up, we talk about the sad day yesterday at the Los Angeles Times, what it means for local journalism, as well as for those who are leaving the paper. We'll be back in one minute.
3: Support for LAs comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
0: It's air talk on LA's eighty-nine point three. I'm Larry Mantle. Such difficult news yesterday for all of us who love the Los Angeles Times, who love local journalism. And have people that we know who have lost their jobs at the Los Angeles Times. This is one of those stories that is personal for so many people on multiple levels. The Times announcing yesterday it plans to lay off at least 115 employees. That's about 50. Uh, sorry, 20 percent of the newsroom. Uh, this because of the massive losses of 30 to 40 million dollars. Uh, the paper's owner Patrick soon Sean says that the that the paper is losing on an annual basis. Uh, Last uh, Friday, there was a one-day walkout. Uh, About 350 employees uh, in the first union-organized work stoppage in the paper's history walked off the job. The top editor at The Times, Kevin uh, Merida, uh, announced his surprise recognition, uh, resignation, I should say, a week before last. So there's just been turmoil at the paper. I'd like to hear from you if you are one of the journalists at The Times, either one who is exiting the paper, because of the layoffs, or someone who will continue with the Times but has some thoughts about what this means for the future of the publication, please join us now at 866 893 That's 866 893 With me is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. David, thank you so much. Uh, this is a huge loss at the Times. Please put this in the broader perspective of what's happening in local and national journalism.
7: Well, and let's first put it in a broader perspective of Los Angeles Times for a moment. I mean, as you said, it was it's about 22 23% of the newsroom. But we went through this story late last spring as well when they laid off 13%. And if you do the numbers as I did, granted, on the back of an envelope, I'd say pretty much one in every three newsroom employees uh, uh, that was on staff last year late last spring is off the staff as of today. That is, they've laid off a third of their newsroom in about eight months, and that is a, a huge hit. Uh, but we have seen uh, tough times at uh, you know, NPR laid off 10% last year, but we feel that, or we're told that we are now on secure economic footing. You saw CNN go through major layoffs over the course of the last year, 15 months. Uh, you saw the Washington Post over the course of the last 12 months has laid off about 12% of its newsroom. Uh, It, it too, is owned by a civic-minded billionaire and Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos, a little bit analogous, I think, in some ways, perhaps the best analog to the Los Angeles Times. Uh, You know, what you've seen is is what I have come to call a media recession. You know, there are plenty of people who are hurting right now across the country and in in various regions uh, and, and industries. But, you know, there's not a recession. We're actually having you know, extraordinarily sustained low unemployment levels, uh, inflation has come back under control, wage increases have outstripped uh, inflation. Uh, and so for much of the economy, you know, there's opportunity. In media, it's not the same story. You've seen layoffs even among the digital media giants, such as Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, anything with the real exposure to advertising has taken a real hit. And why is that? Well, All all of our corporate leaders and all of our financial types and many of our economists, for for several years, were saying we're going to hit another great major recession. And it hasn't happened. But one of the places companies pull back on when they fear such things as a way of trimming costs is advertising. And it's hit all of our sector pretty hard, uh, and those that rely on advertising particularly hard, and those without a clear-cut path to profitability – including right now at the Washington Post and especially the L.A. Times, despite having deep-pocketed owners, well, it's taken a real hit. And in some ways, actually, the union said they, they had, had expected the hit to be even greater, but that the management pulled back a bit after, uh, after both unions and, and newsroom leaders made a case to, to, to management for otherwise.
0: David, thank you so much for getting us started on our conversation. We appreciate it very much. We'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you. David Falkenflick, NPR media correspondent with us again. I'd like to hear from you if you are someone associated with the Times or are leaving the paper as a result of the layoffs announced yesterday. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. To give you a sense of, of some of the immediate impact, you know, for many of us, the sports pages of the Los Angeles Times are a significant draw to the publication, and the beat writers for the Dodgers and Angels just before the start of spring training— They are part of the layoffs of the organization. Now, others may move into those positions, but it just gives you a sense of of the kind of turmoil this creates on the editorial side of the paper and, of course, the life impact on the people that are losing their jobs in a contracting media environment where there may not be other places for them to uh, use their journalistic skills and experience. Also with us is Christina Bellantoni, professor of professional practice of journalism at the University of Southern California. Uh, Christina, thank you for joining us again. We, we had wondered whether Kevin um, Merritt's leaving the Times might have been related to him being asked to do such large-scale layoffs. Now the layoffs have have come. How do you see this affecting the coverage of the paper?
8: It's hard to see how they can continue to be excellent with so many fewer people and with the morale as low as it is at this exact moment. What we already know is that due to the cuts on their politics team and the Washington Bureau, you know, two things I I worked very closely with those teams when I was there and it, it's devastating in an election year when they have a need. Now, we talked about on the program last time I was on, is that the right strategy for the LA Times? Maybe they just decide to be all local and refocus political coverage. So they're not doing national coverage competing with national media. I think that's a fair business strategy if you communicate it as a strategy. And having been at the table. A member of the masthead, when when Dr. Sun Xiang first came up with the deal and he invited the masthead to come join him at his company and we had a, a long meeting and he made very clear he really wanted to be a robust national paper. He One of the reasons he decided to buy the paper mid our trunk insanity at the time was because he didn't want to see the Washington Bureau closed. Obviously, things changed you know, market factors, etc. But, you know, that was part of his vision. So to see that dismantled, like that's going to dramatically affect things. This morning's front page, you know, they've got a major story with analysis out of New Hampshire. Um, They've got, you know, strong looks at national issues and you tiny little blurb that, you know, on the business section, there's a mention of 115 cuts. So the the coverage will suffer. And particularly, there were a lot of people who were in the middle of stories. I mean, I'm sure you all saw the The stories, you know, one reporter was up in Oregon and was called back, you know, while getting laid off, Uh, just kind of like, gee, am I finishing this story or not? Mm -hmm. Um, That's just the way that it happened sounded quite messy and ugly. And right now you've got L.A. Times journalists who are actually showing up at the building and there's a list at security of people who should not be allowed into the building, which also doesn't feel right
0: I mean, yourself as a a former longtime editor and journalist, what does this do to morale in the building?
8: It's just it's so you you feel for your colleagues. You're angry at how people were treated. And then, you know, the union had particularly complained, saying it wasn't fair that management was asking them to pit members against one another by uh, lifting those seniority protections for the for the members. And I had a conversation with someone over the weekend who said, you know, look like if they were to offer some buyouts, there would be senior people who would take them. Um and even you know sort of mid-level people who aren't, you know, decades at the paper but maybe a decade or so. And I wonder if that might actually be the next step that we're going to see so it will get further worse, but Um, You know, you're seeing the more senior people just devastated that the strides, particularly in making this newsroom reflective of Los Angeles and the world that it covers uh, for the first time, really, really reflective of that city and doing coverage that was important to the cultural communities in this second largest city in America, like that will change immediately. And so, of course, it just makes everybody feel like you've taken 10 steps backwards with no path to to restore where it was.
0: And just to elaborate, Christina, what you're talking about is because the layoffs were handled uh, protecting those with seniority in the paper, it means more recent journalistic arrivals to the staff of The Times were much more diverse than the longer time employees of the time that, that, that a significant amount of diversity is lost because that those younger journalists are more diverse than the older journalists. So, so with yeah, that, yeah you know, are gone.
3: I
8: think it's important to say it's not just like younger, new people starting out. They hired a lot of mid-career journalists to do extremely impactful coverage, joining those younger journalists who are still learning and starting out, who, yes, were, were reflective of the demographics of L.A., but also you know, multilingual and had a different approach to coverage. I mean, the entire team on their 404 side, which was attracting a young audience with vertical social video, you know, was gone. They had just started Delos, which was a really important community-based, you know, really engaging group of journalists who were talking to the community um, in LA that is so vital here and that, you know, not many news outlets pay attention to. Now, I will give a huge shout out to LAist, which, you know, it still keeps me going and gives me hope for a vibrant um, community coverage here. Um, I'm just very grateful for it still.
0: Well, thank you so much, Christina Bellantoni, professor of professional practice of journalism at USC, and for many years, a professional journalist with the Los Angeles Times. Let's talk with Alan in Santa Barbara. Alan, I understand you were a reporter for the Times uh, back in the 70s and 80s?
9: That's right, yeah, i worked uh for the times for eighty nine years in the almost ten years in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, and people should the listeners should uh have some perspective. there were over twelve hundred people in the newsroom It was the peak of the times wow. I think, in many respects. Otis Chandler was still involved as the publisher um they sport they spared no expense in the newsroom uh in those days they had top notch journalists uh uh and uh, bureaus all over the world and certainly all over the country. And uh, uh, just to give you a little flavor, if you were a reporter and you had to travel more than 1,500 miles for a story, they flew you first class. Wow. (laughs) It's hard to believe.
0: It is. Then
9: starting starting in 82, I think it was, when Otis left, uh, Tom Johnson came in. The family no longer really had its hand on the tiller directly the way Otis did. And uh, then in the late '80s, they started laying people offering buyouts, and then of course the layoffs started in the late '80s. Um, they still had about a thousand people in the newsroom, I believe, by 2000. But uh, it just steadily uh, went down from there. And of course, you know, the economics that the other folks on the on the program have talked about uh, for the entire industry. But just to give you that, just gives you a flavor for yeah. how 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 far down. Uh, and they've lost, I know that they've done a much better job with diversity in the last few years, but also what's happened, aside from the diminishment of the staff, is a lot of your really experienced reporters and editors have had to leave or have chosen to leave. Um, and uh, that has affected the, certainly the, the, that plus the numbers and the resources, the, the cuts in numbers and resources of reporters. Uh, you know, clearly the paper is not what it was, uh, and it's very unfortunate. Um,
0: uh, it's got to be hard for you as someone who was on the inside to see that
9: happen. Yeah, it is. And uh, I spent many years in public relations so had continued uh, dealings with the reporters and the editors over the years. And, and there's still a few people left, Doug Smith and people I worked with, uh, Jim Rainey, um, Uh, But not many. And and they're obviously after the people with the higher salaries, which means that they're also going to lose more experience uh, in the newsroom.
0: Alan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your experience as a Times journalist uh, several decades ago talking about the changes. Christina, I, I, I assume I can't see you, but you were nodding your head through portions of that.
8: Yeah, I was, you know, I, I was only there for three years because I spent most of my career in Washington, DC, um, working for other outlets, but you you did see that like when my very first, I think it was like within three months of me getting there, they did a large buyout that Tribune Company at the time said was like gonna be the last one ever. And a huge number of that institutional knowledge who remembered those days that Allen was going over, you know, were really sad. And, and they closed the Orange County Bureau, Mm-hmm. And you you just saw, you know, the paper is just so much smaller than it ever used to be. And and back when it was a competitor at that national level. And, you know, it is sad. And it is also something that, you know, as David uh, very well covers, like this is happening across the country. And I just, I get so angry when I think about what this city deserves in terms of a vibrant media, but also I just try to see, you know, for my students here, you know, who all of them applied for the LA Times internships. A lot of them dream of working there. You know, what What are the opportunities here? You know, there there are a lot of great nonprofit startups. As mentioned, there's LAS. There's, there are a lot of potential um, vibrant media outlets that could help resurge this area. And then maybe there could be a renewed investment in the LA Times again, and there could be rebuilding. And I just, I'm trying to have hope yeah. there, but I Don't see it, especially when other newspapers say, oh, well, we got to keep competitive. We got to lay off, too. And some people are making layoffs even when they're facing great profit.
0: I, I just think, Christina, back, you know, with the in the heyday of the L.A. Times and all the car ads and all the, you know, uh, uh, department store display ads, pages and pages. And that's when we had, you know, many different competitors in the department store space. So you'd see the Broadway and Bullocks and, and the May Company and, and all these different places each with not just one full-page ad, they could end up having four or five full-page ads in a given print run of the Times. And that represented a huge amount of revenue coming into Mm -hmm. the papers. And we just live in a totally different era where those and dollars are gone, too.
8: You know, even like if you're going to buy a a, gr- um, a refrigerator or something, right? Like these companies that used to sell things like that. Like the yeah. the, the world has just changed.
0: Yeah, I right? mean, there used to be all Amazon these electronic and stores, Box. and you know now it's <clears throat> Best Buy and Costco and very much more limited. We'll continue our conversation about the Los Angeles Times. Its large layoff announced yesterday of at least 115 people that work in the newsroom, more than 20 percent of the Times being laid off, what the effects of that are. Christina Bellantoni, professor of professional practice of journalism at USC with us. And coming up, we'll talk with MSNBC columnist, the former president of Futuro Media, Julio Ricardo Varela, when we come back in just 90 seconds. Speaking of journalism, yesterday we lost Charles Osgood, who was a figure on CBS for, oh gosh, nearly 50 years. He uh, started in local radio, uh, he was at CBS's news radio station in New York, News Radio 88, then created the Osgood File for the CBS network, uh, jumped to television. He was the host of CBS Sunday Morning for many, many years. And such an original presence on television. The bow ties, him on Sunday morning sometimes sitting down and playing at the piano. He was so... Himself, when he was on the air. Just a wonderful example how being such an individual personality captivated viewers. Charles Osgood really missed when he retired uh, several years ago from CBS Sunday morning. He was 83 when he retired and he died yesterday at the age of 91. Charles Osgood, certainly a presence in journalism missed. We're talking about yesterday's layoffs at the Los Angeles Times and the effect on local journalism. Uh, Bob in Irvine, who's a Times reader for a long time, says if you lived in Southern California for a long time, you know the Times in the mid-20th century was a world-class newspaper with world-class writers, reporters, and editors No longer. We need to ask why America's second largest city and metro area can't do better. Hint, it's not about money. That's Bob in Irvine. Joining us now, MSNBC columnist and former president of Futuro Media, Julio Ricardo Varela. Thank you so much, Julio, for being with us. We talked earlier about how... Journalists of color are disproportionately hit by this because they are more recent arrivals to the L.A. Times and, and were first subject to layoffs. Uh, share with us your, your thoughts about, on the impact of its coverage of communities of color in Southern California.
10: Uh, considering that Los Angeles County is 50 percent Latino and according to the Latino Caucus in the L.A. Times, 38 percent of its members were laid off yesterday. I think it's pretty devastating. I think what you're seeing is a regression, a major regression of a city and a community and a media outlet that has never really diversified itself and was just beginning to do it. And this is the other problem with journalists of color. Um, The runway is very short right now. So everyone talks about community reporting and being more diverse, but take the example of Delos, which I think is the most innovative outlet out there digital outlet right now in the latino media space they got six months they weren't even given a chance to grow and you know you you lose amazing people like ale molina and susie exposito who are amazing journalists who are speaking to the community not only locally but nationally you know the question of all these young latinos and latinas who are consuming news and digital news it doesn't just apply to los angeles there's plenty of examples of people that read me and read the read de I was a subs- I'm a subscriber to the L.A. Times, in the sense that it brought new audiences and was never given a chance. The same thing with 404, and I think this is the problem that media outlets and especially traditional media outlets are struggling with. They have traditional audiences that still you know subscribe, but they've completely missed the boat on a younger, more mobile more engaged more educated community specifically in Los Angeles that is bilingual bicultural spanish adjacent and it does not see themselves in the commu- in the paper in the media that they serve so they create these own these new lanes and they don't even get 6 months to survive that's a problem that is a major problem not only for the Los Angeles times but for national media for nonprofit media for public media you know all of us you know i i had to step down as as Futuro Media president because of the same economic situations that were at NPR we're at KPCC these are all challenges that we haven't figured out as journalists and as media leaders of how to deal with it but the one thing i will say is the future of media and journalism is young latino and latina and the demographics show it and if you're not investing now you're out of business in 20 30 years
0: we're talking with uh, Julio Ricardo Varela, MSNBC columnist, the former president of Futuro Media, talking about uh, the challenges with the L.A. Times now being able to, to cover the diverse communities. You mentioned uh, half of Los Angeles County is Latino. Um, and and so what is the answer here, Julio? I mean, obviously, as, as you said, you know, even nonprofits like you were associated with are yeah. seeing this, too. It's not just big corporations corporate entities, it's, it's lean and and mean organizations that you think might have the best chance of making it and they're struggling.
10: Right, first of all, I think we all as media executives or as media leaders or as journalists, and there is an ugly reality and an ugly truth, and, it, and I don't wanna sound corporate, but we have to do more, with, like the reality is we're doing more with less. So how do you maintain the high level of journalism? that, you know, merits KPCC and I mean, to uh, you know, you guys rebranded. I always, I, but that's you know, right. That's everybody's, uh,
0: everybody's struggling with that. It's you <laughs> know, it's like
10: you're rebranding. So my point being is like, how do you maintain that high quality and how do you serve the community? Right. So that, you know, journalism is still a noble profession. I haven't given up on it. Um, and I hope a lot of people that are listening and, and yourself and others, you know, Informing communities with factual stories and and sort of the beat of your community is always going to be something that is has value. The big question right now is, what do you do? So now you're starting to see more of a local angle, and that's why I was very surprised with Delos, which I know it, it's not. Done. Is it going away? I was. No, it's not going. From what I understand, there's still a couple of people there. I just don't know what the plan is. I think one of the directors, you know, I know the editor. Um, Angel Rodriguez, who, who said, you know, you know, we're not done yet, but we don't know what it is. But but this is what I'm going to say about this. You know what that outlet, what that part of the L.A. Times did was begin to do something that the L.A. Times should have been doing for decades. And that is actually going into like having people who know Los Angeles, who know Latino Los Angeles and cover it. And it was just starting to get attention. Right. So so put that in putting that aside it's not like news consumers are going to go away you're going to have to ask yourself everyone needs to ask themselves do you want to get all your news from tiktok and influencers or do you want credible journalists well, right can... and, and and what what i mean and what is important right credibility and journalism as a profession is going to get us through the age of like artificial intelligence and misinformation I still have hope for it but the problem the problem is you still have to serve all these traditional audiences yeah. and and the fact is newspapers let's just be real let's get the memo newspapers in general just never never ever thought that the internet was going to transform like they just were like the internet was sort of this like what is this and they failed Newspapers
0: have failed. Hey, Julio, I, and, need to, I need to break. I'm so sorry. But no, that's But hold okay. that thought, please. We're talking with Julio Ricardo Varela, MSNBC columnist, former president of Futuro Media, its properties including Latino Rebels, Latino USA, and In the Thick. We'll continue talking with him. Also with us from USC professor of professional practice of journalism, Christina Bellantoni. Years and editor and longtime journalist based in DC and at the Los Angeles Times before joining the Academy. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about yesterday's very, very difficult day. At the Los Angeles Times and for local consumers of journalism, the Times announcing a layoff of at least 115 people in the newsroom following a layoff that occurred last year that was significant in size, this one even larger, representing just over 20 percent of the editorial staff of the Times. We're talking about what the implications are. Um, Patrick Soon-Shang, who is the owner of the Los Angeles Times, saying the publication lost more than $30 million last year, and even for a billionaire, that's significant loss. uh, and uh, the Sun Chang family not, not interested in sustaining that level of loss in years going forward. Uh, we're talking with uh, Julio Ricardo Varela of MSNBC. Julio, I mean, you, you, what does this mean for the idea of sort of the, the, pa- the newspaper patron, the wealthy person who has a, a civic um, a civic good takes over a newspaper and funds it. Uh, I mean, is that, is that model generally just not panning out?
10: Well, yeah. I mean, I think we have to start looking at journalism as a public service. And I do think that the nonprofit public media model, I think is the way to go. I've been in that space for about 10 years and I see it right. Having done commercial media before. So I do think that there's something to be said about that. There is, you know, it's who funds it, right? And and where do you create the runways? How long is your runway? And is it good business can that? I, I the big question is. Can it be good business and also serve the community? And I don't really think there's a lot of outlets out there that have answered that question really well. And I think we're sort of in this space right now where we're figuring it out and we're discovering new communities and new readership and you know, competing against the metas and the Instagrams and the TikToks and, and the Facebooks of the world and the Xs or the Twitter or whatever, and then AI comes in. But I do honestly believe that people still need to be informed and the value of that information being credible and real and unbiased or or, if, or smart commentary, like, for example, the, the fact that the, Latina, the only Latina columnist I know that has a national readership, Gene Guerrero, was let go yesterday. That really concerns me. But the point being is that I don't necessarily think that journalism is going to be a profit maker anymore, and it has to be a public service. And that changes how we fund it. I don't know what that looks like. But there's a lot of things that are going out, going on really well right now. For example, the local initiative, a local reporting initiative like Press Forward that has been done by all these major national foundations. Those are just the beginning yeah. of the foundations. But who knows? Yeah. I and I we, don't, hopeful.
0: we don't want to forget Gustavo Ariano as well. Oh, the yeah, Los Gustavo's is great. He's still there. Uh, he's he's who's, still there. He's great. Who, but we who lost does. Gene. And yeah,
10: yeah. I became a subscriber. I read Gene all the time. And it's a really sad that Gene Guerrero was like, oh, she is a. Incredible voice. Incredible voice. So
0: so many people of, of, of tremendous talent being lost. Uh let me bring Christina Bellantoni back back into the conversation. The New York Times seems to be figuring this out. Julio was just talking about how, you know, challenging it is for folks to figure this out. We look at like the, the New York Times seems to be the the um you know uh example of one that that has figured it out. What do they do and is there anything that can be replicated elsewhere, Christina?
8: I mean, in some cases, they they were sort of doing it at the LA Times, like back to Delos, which I, I could not agree more with everything that's been said so far. You know, one of their laid off employees like tweeted earlier or X earlier, I guess we're supposed to say now, <laughs> uh, you know, that this is an a, a arm of the paper, an outlet of the paper that actually brings in revenue. You know, so it's it is working. It's just that they had to, you know, fire the most recent hires. And so in some ways, like they they had started to think about things that that were different. And and I, I just go back to the what are the media models? You know, should it be a for profit enterprise? Is nonprofit the way to go? We also have, you know, the the state of California devoted some funding it's a very short term funding when you think about journalism and that long term investment that's necessary to boosting newsrooms in this state. And that that journalism initiative is extremely interesting, like all the journalism schools are paying a lot of attention to it and seeing where these newsrooms are starting to do some incredible deep reporting and giving opportunity not just to young people starting out, but also to these outlets that just need a little bit of support to get off the ground. Because in the end, like Mm -hmm. this, this, there's nothing more that matters i'll also give a shout out to the the outlook newspaper group which which i actually work with a little bit you know they're covering my community of burbank um really closely and like i can't get that news anywhere else and without being a subscriber like i just wouldn't know what is happening in my community like it's just so so vital to to keep this vibrant, and that includes with people who are representative.
0: Thank you. I'm so sorry I've got to wrap, but that's Professor Christina Bellantoni of USC, Julio Ricardo Varela of MSNBC, where he's columnist. Thank you as well. We appreciate your comments about the Los Angeles Times. I'm reading them as they come in at our email address. Have a terrific rest of your day. Here and Now is next.